Brent Hamachek, well-known author, publisher, and co-founder of CommonGroundCampus.com. Help me welcome him to the C.L. Bryant Show first time. Brent, thank you so much for being with us. How are you, friend? It couldn't be any better. You know, it's my first time, and so you always hope it's not the last time, right? And uh, so then you and your audience will be the judge of that. But uh, for the first time, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. And Brent, let's jump right into uh, what this is all about and what the interview is all about. And I am totally interested in the young people of America. Seems as though you have that same interest. CommonGround.com, CommonGroundCampus.com. Tell us all about it and what's the goal. I will definitely do that. Uh, First, I listened before I came on the air and you were talking about Charlie Kirk and Turning Point USA, and I wouldn't be on your show today if it weren't for Charlie Kirk, uh, because he's the one that picked me out 10 years ago and saw something in me that nobody else had seen and gave me an opportunity to start to contribute to this thing we call a movement. So I always uh, say a special thank you to Charlie, uh, because everything I've done since then has been a result uh, of the trust and belief he had in me. So uh, wherever you are, Charlie, on the air right now doing your show, thanks so much. Uh, so Common Ground Campus is a very unique program that was started by my dear friend and partner, Felissa Blazek and myself. And what we do is, you know, everybody knows about all the divisiveness that's taking place on high school and high school and college campuses these days. So our idea was, instead of going to a campus and debating controversial issues, we thought, why don't we do something novel and try to solve problems? And so we go to a high school or college that invites us. They tell us an issue on campus that is causing division. We pick students from both sides of that issue, sides in sort of air quotes, right? Sides are a funny thing, and maybe we'll talk about that in a bit. But uh, we get them up on stage, and what we do is we take turns having each of them identify something under that heading that they think is a problem, that they think concerns them that needs to be addressed, and they share what that issue is. And then instead of debating anything about what they've said, the other folks, they ask them questions, and they share where they're coming from, and they say, why does this matter to you? What, what do you think would be an acceptable solution, and what do you think? And we go back and forth with this in a moderated sort of discussion that I moderate. And uh, then what uh, I always say, it's the ultimate form of active listening, because what I'm trying to do is as I hear these students on stage sharing different thoughts and ideas, I'll say, you know, I think I just heard X, Y, and Z from all of you. If we did this, is that something we could all agree on? And when I get all the heads nodding on stage, then I'll say, well, then it looks like we just found common ground oh i love it i love it go ahead yeah so all we're trying to do is to show people that when you sit down in person and in person is the key here right because we've become very very good on social media at hating people in the third person we hate the they's and them's but when somebody's sitting directly across from you and you actually start to talk to them about well, wait, where are you coming from on this? And what do you think? Well, it gets harder to hate them, and it gets easier to figure out what similarities you have where you might actually be able to find agreement. 
And so that's what we're doing. And uh, last thought before I go to your your next question, which will be a great one. And and that is, I, I like to say that Felicity and I are sort of like farmers, right? And what we're doing is we're planting seeds. The difference between us and a farmer is a farmer knows what they're trying to grow. What we're trying to do is plant seeds in people that grow independently within each of them to find ways to bridge communication gaps, to have civil discourse, and to solve problems instead of living in a binary world of me against you any way I can find it. When we ask the right questions, it seems that people then begin to listen to their own answers. Are the young people actually surprised sometimes to see that the differences in what they're thinking and what they think about the other side, in quotes, uh, are actually very, very similar because they have an American commonality. Is there a, 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 a shred of patriotism left in our young people? You would know better than I. Talk to us. So uh, to your first part, part of your question with regard to hearing, hearing themselves, look, this is the key. And I've been teaching persuasive communication and been in sales for many, many decades. And so the greatest way to get someone to come to your sort of point of view or meet you somewhere is to have them have a revelation that is expressed to them in their own words. In other words, I always say the key to any sort of breakthrough uh, with another person is to have them sort of tip their head, hold their chin, look at the sky and say, I never thought of that. And the minute those words come out of their mouth, all of a sudden, everything is on the table. So what we're trying to do is is get students to do that, to create that spiritual awakening in somebody from what would be the other side. And, and then all of a sudden, they become very, very open to solutions instead of positions. We're focused on solutions and not positions. In terms of patriotism, you know, it's a that's that's a giant question, right? I think that one of the great tragedies uh, of what's happened in America that you could really argue started, had its seeds in the Vietnam War, is that we've become over time less and less enchanted with the idea that somehow or other the United States is special. And as a result of that, patriotism seems to be something for most people that's almost passe. In fact, you should apologize for it. And I think within young people, patriotism, we live under a bell curve. There's exceptions to this. But under the bell curve, I think patriotism, by and large, has picked up a bit of a dirty name. And I think it's because they feel guilty. And they think that because America isn't perfect, it isn't admirable. And that's that's a problem, right? So if we're going to search for perfection, if we find it, we can join it, and then it won't be perfect the minute we, we join it, right? Because that's what we are as humans. And we need to get people, again, to be proud of the fact that America, with its imperfections embraced and acknowledged, is still the greatest nation that's ever been deliberately designed by anybody. And that's not an easy thing to do because we've been chipping away at that now for decades. It is the greatest nation on the face of the planet, the greatest success story the world has ever known. All of you hear me say that on a daily basis. And Brent, I am certainly glad to hear 
uh, that Charlie and you and, and, and Common Ground uh, Campus is, in fact, championing that idea because our young people can't love America if they don't know about America. And, you know, our history is so skewed, but through it all, through it all, we have indeed found a way to form a more perfect union. And those old white men, full disclosure, everybody listen to me, they know that uh, I'm, I'm a black conservative who happens to vote Republican most of the time, if not all of the time, uh, it, it is this. And that is that we all have our individual choices to make. But how can you choose America if you stop studying about what has actually made us great? It's us, the people. It's not the government. You know, talk to us about uh, about where you see this going, our nation. If we're successful, if you're successful, uh, where do you see us going in five years? If we're not successful, Brent, what type of peril do we face? Well, again, another great question, another big question, right? So I'm a big believer in that one of the most foolish notions that people can hold to in fact it's not just foolish it's dangerous is that you can say it under three different headings that we all know uh the pendulum swings both ways everything happens in cycles history repeats itself all of these things are provably false and they're absolute nonsense the danger in them lies in the fact that people think if they sit back and wait everything will change and it will be fine again we live in a world of cause and effect and trajectory. And if you look at the United States, so I argue over the past 100 plus years, we've actually been on a steady path towards collectivism. And I, I also make the argument that uh, Marx, who's discounted by many, was right uh, about the way that uh, mature capitalist countries move. They move in that collectivist direction. The party got wrong was human nature. We're not heading towards utopia. We're heading towards night of the living dead. So what the, the, the challenge we face is clear. What we're trying to do is alter the trajectory of where we're heading. And where we're heading is towards a complete and utter uh, explosion uh, of the United States Constitution. That's the target. That's the collectivist target. Because if they can hit it, they can destroy the greatest document built on individual liberty and those ideas that was ever created. So the job of people like us is to try to get enough people aware that that is the target, that it's a target that needs protecting, and we need to divert the course of that missile. And so we pull at it and we try to alter the path. And uh, if we're successful, we're going to have some chance of not necessarily some full reversal and certainly not a pendulum swing. But we will have a chance to say, all right, we've come very, very close to losing all of our individual liberty. It missed the target, but now what do we do to put things back together? Because obviously there's been a ton of collateral damage. So we do our best we can to make it miss the target, and then we do the best we can to try to restore and preserve as much as we can, I think. Um, that's the way I view it over these next 
X number of years. I really like uh, the way you approach that uh, that question. I, I'd like to. It's very interesting then to ask you uh, this question about the genesis of where this all started and where this all uh, came from. You mentioned the Vietnam War, and I was alive during the Vietnam War. I was a very young young man, but I I was alive during the Vietnam War. And things did change in this country, no doubt about it, uh, right after Vietnam. But uh, who then can we point to? There has to be someone with uh, nefarious ideas about our Constitution, wanting to eliminate it. And who, where did this begin? Uh, when did this downward trajectory of American patriotism and the attack on the the greatest document, in my estimation, other than Scripture itself, uh, uh, what did what did this start in your estimation? Talk to us. I I love that question. I've done a lot of speaking and writing on that very question. So one of the things that we love to do, and and you just did it, and by the way, it's not any form of a criticism. It's human nature. We like to say, where did this start? And it doesn't matter what this is. And we like to try to point to some single moment. You know, where was the fuse lit? And I like to suggest to people to look at this a different way. Imagine in your home the electrical wiring that runs through every room. And it runs in different paths and patterns. But ultimately, no matter where it started, it all converges together in a big bundle of wires at a junction box. And so there's a number of things that have been running in different paths heading in the same collectivist direction for a very long time. You can point to a lot of things. I'll give you a few. One of them is sort of the imperial presidency of Teddy Roosevelt, where he started to change the executive function nature of uh, the three branches of government. Another is the establishment of the Federal Reserve System and the federal income tax. Another is the establishment of a national police force. Another happened off our shores with the establishment of the Frankfurt School in Germany and the idea that Marxism as a dialectical materialistic focus needed to be accelerated through some social action. All of these differing things, and there are others, have been running on a path towards collectivism. And what we're seeing in our day and time now is a convergence of different runs of wire. And so uh, that means, by the way, as anybody who might have stuck their finger in a junction box ever, of course, they wouldn't let them tell about it. That means that it's picked up a tremendous amount of energy and power. And so, again, now diverting that, stopping that run, shutting off that flow, that's a difficult thing because there's not one there's not one fuse that you see that we can extinguish. There are many, and they've all come together. Extinguish one and the others remain. So there's a lot of stuff to unpack for us. When we talk about literacy in America, it was said on this show a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember who said it. Everybody's been on, Brent, uh, from Sean Hannity to you name them, uh, have been right here on the show. And they they say a lot of things that I I really catalog. And there's been several things that you've said that you're going to hear again for sure. I I forgot to tell you, I'm the Milton Berle of radio. I hear my guests say it, and pretty soon I'm saying it too. And so I would be very humbled <laughs> but you've said several things uh, here today, and you talked about literacy in, 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 in a way that I think is eye-opening. And, and uh, my question is this. How then do we 
teach or preach a, a literate, a literate message as you, as you so clearly are doing to a people or young people in our educational system who are seemingly progressively becoming more illiterate. I'm not talking about stupid. I'm not calling any of our children stupid or anything of that nature. I'm telling, I'm saying that they're uninformed. And how, how do you uh, get to a point where you turn that particular ship around where literacy, especially about the nature and, and the reason for America, how do we turn that around? Talk to us. Well, yeah, interesting thought on literacy, just a fun historical aside. From what we know, uh, most, if not all, of, of Christ's disciples were illiterate, but yet they certainly knew how to think, didn't they? And so our problem lies not so much, although I'm not discounting the need for what's taught uh, in terms of actual facts and knowledge and so on, but what we're really missing in this country is the combination of critical thinking and skepticism. And, you know, so I said this recently once to somebody and they, they said, well, how can you say we're not skeptical? People doubt and, and argue about everything. And, and my answer was skepticism without critical thinking is nothing more than cynicism. So we have a nation filled with cynics, but we have very few real skeptics because we haven't been teaching people how to think critically. And I think that the biggest thing we could do to improve America's youth and then their future and then our future in turn is not so much to worry about what they're being taught in terms of uh, factual items, but to worry about how they're being taught to think. That would be the key element because, because our own ability to discern and question can stop us being, from being led down false paths, right? Because simply somebody saying for a moment, wait a minute, I need to think about what you just said. I'm not prepared to accept an unfaced value. There is nothing more powerful for a free people than that. You know, it's the most powerful thing you could teach. You know, Brent, uh, you, you obviously, as, uh, as Paul stood before, I believe it was Felix, uh, and, and, and Felix uh, said to him, I perceive, sir, that you are a Christian, that you are a Christian. And in uh, being so, in this country, I truly believe, uh, whether you agree with me or not, Brent, that was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles and ethics. Uh, the the mission of Christ when he came, of course, the, if uh, many of my, much of my audience uh, do believe that same thing, and they understand the doctrines of uh, the Pharisees, uh, Hebrew, uh, the uh, Sadducees, and the Pharisees at the time, and Christ when he entered this earth realm. Uh, he took them on. He took that governmental structure, which it was under Caesar. He took them on, and it got him crucified. And, and, and being an ordained pre, um, pastor and uh, having pastored four church, three churches across the nation, I have seen this weakness in pastors, and that is they are afraid of the crucifixion. Uh, they're afraid of that. They're afraid of losing the pulpit or losing a member or something of that nature. But, you know, without the crucifixion, Brent, there can be no resurrection. 
And America now need to have its shepherds in the, its pulpits uh, ready to walk the, the walk and, and go up Calvary's hill if necessary. Uh, are you seeing then a, uh, an abandonment of responsibility by those of us who should be and should be called by God to be leaders of faith in this country, regardless of what their particular denominational status might be? Speak to us a little bit about that. Sure, I'll do it on a. I'll do it on the literal religious level. I'll do it on the secular level. From a lig- religious perspective, I make the argument that if you had somebody that came up to you and said, "Hey, I'm I'm looking into this Christianity thing, and I really think I I want to sign up. I just need the one single biggest benefit, and if it's good, I'm in." Well, for any Christian, the answer is easy. There's many benefits, but the biggest one is the gift of eternal life. And what did we see during the pandemic? We saw so many ministers, Protestants and Catholic uh, ministers, priests, choose your appropriate title, don't mean to be offensive. But we saw so many members of clergy not buying what they were selling and such an obsession with their temporal life that they forgot about the gift of eternal life. And you started to get the feeling, whoa, if you don't believe in Christianity's biggest selling point, what else don't you believe in? And in terms of using resurrection as a metaphor, I wrote a piece back in January of 2021 that I updated and republished on human events uh, just this past November called Understanding and Embracing the Role of a 21st Century American Dissident. And in that piece, I make the argument that people that look at the world the way you and I probably do, the way most of your audience does, we need to understand that right now in this moment in time, we are no longer citizens of equal rights. Uh, We are effectively dissidents like those folks were in Eastern Europe for the last half of the last century. And I make the argument as to how it happened, why it happened and what it means and more importantly than what you have to do. And one of those stories or one of those points I make is that you're going to have to be willing to place yourself at risk. And it doesn't mean you want to martyr yourself recklessly like so many people do on social media. You know, they say, wow, I'm going to put this on Facebook and watch me get taken down. And they put it on Facebook and they get taken down and they're out of the fight. Right. So it's not about reckless martyrdom, but it is about understanding that if you think you can do this, if we think we can make changes in this country without putting ourselves in personal risk, well, we're simply naive and we're not really fully committed to do it. So there's my thought on your your resurrection uh, sort of theory um, from, from both realms, if you will. Absolutely uh, right. And uh, hey, those of you who are listening across the country and of course those uh, men and women uh, around the globe, I know that you're listening uh, wherever you are defending our right to speak our mind in uniform and and we salute you. Uh, I, I want you, I certainly hope that you have been persuaded. Brent, tell everybody, tell everybody how to get in touch with you and your work to hear your thoughts, your ideas coming from you. And of course, uh, those who are part of the big umbrella of Turning Point, how do they get in touch with you? How do they help you financially if, in fact, they're so inclined? Well, that, that's, a, that's the most important question you'll ask. I'm smiling as I answer it. Uh, look, from the Common Ground Campus perspective, uh, we're in the process of having a 
foundation be stood up to support our efforts. And so we're excited about that. But in the meantime, if people go to commongroundcampus.com and fill out the little contact form, that's pretty simple. I mean, even I can do it. I tested it originally. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll reach out. And uh, look, we need we need schools and we need money and we need microphones. And uh, so we need places to do the program. We need people to talk about the program and we need people to support the program. And uh, here's what I would say to your audience sort of as, as a pitch in that regard. You know, I know, they know, everybody's looking at the country right now and saying, this is a mess. This is not sustainable. Somebody has to do something. Well, as I'm fond of saying, you know, Felicia and I, we know that we can't change the world. We know that. We're, we don't have any naive aspirations. But what we do know is this. We can do something. And what we've decided to do is try to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. We don't serve red meat. Uh, what we do is serve a balanced meal of engagement. And if people say, I really think I'd like to see something change, well, if you're busy and don't have the time or the, the skill set or the ideas of what you can do yourself, well, then you can support us in what we're trying to do. And uh, we, will, we will do it best in your name. Uh, so uh, it's a way to live in the solution. It's a way to be part of the solution. And certainly we're, we're grateful. We're grateful for any interest, any inquiries. Uh, it all matters to us. You know, uh, Brent, as one old salesman, obviously to another, uh, you know uh, this old adage, I believe it was old Tommy Hopkins that came up with this uh, uh, many uh, years ago. If you say it, they will doubt it. But if you can get them to say it, then it becomes true. And uh, the, the thing that uh, you are highly successful, you guys are highly successful at it. In fact, I look to join you guys uh, in, in Florida, in Palm Beach, uh, here uh, soon. I think it's next week or week after. I will be there with you all and uh, look forward to meeting you. Uh, but you uh, have something, I think, that is absolutely valuable to the future of our nation. I'm going to uh, pray that God will bless and keep your endeavors, uh, order your steps in his word, and, uh, of course, uh, let you see the fruit of your labor. Brent, uh, uh, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for coming on uh, with us here today. And, hey, at the outset of the show, you were talking about uh, coming back again. Man, there is no question that... <laughs> trip number two. That's <laughs> My father used to say when he went to someone's house for dinner, he'd tell them how good the meal was, and they'd say, well, you had to say that. And he would say, yes, I did, but I didn't have to go back for seconds. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, Brent Hamachek, I thank you again, and uh, God bless, God keep you. We'll talk to you real soon. <laughs>